Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPADPOD. I'm Simon Mayburn, and today I'm joined by Gillian Schwedler. Gillian is Professor of Political Science at Hunter College and the Graduate Center, City University of New York. She's the author of a number of books and articles on Jordan and the wider Middle East, including Faith in Moderation, Islamist Parties in Jordan and Yemen, and the absolutely fantastic Protesting Jordan, Geographies of Power and Dissent, which is one of the best books I've read on the Middle East this year. So I'm really, really delighted that Gillian's here with us today. Gillian, thank you so much for joining us. Wow, thank you. Thank you for that lovely introduction. A pleasure, and I, I mean every word. I think it's a, a fabulous book, and I'm really looking forward to to talking with you a bit more in, in detail about about what's going on in the book and the, the various themes that are at play. But before we get there, we have to start out with, with the beginning of your journey, please. I mean, how did how did you get interested in the Middle East? How did you get interested in, in political science more broadly? Well, it was kind of a random story. I was I'm from Detroit and I wanted to be a Broadway actress and I moved to New York when I was eighteen. I went to NYU, which was the school that gave me the most money to be in New York City, so <laughs> that's where I ended up there. Uh, and once I got here, I wasn't really as interested in pursuing theater. I think for a way, for me, it was a way to get out of Michigan. And once I was in New York City, I just fell in love with the city. Um, I had a roommate. Uh, they didn't have enough uh, dormitories for me. And she was going on these backpacking trips. And so I got a passport. And the next summer, I went on a backpacking trip with her. And she chose Turkey and Syria. And so I went to Turkey and Syria in 1986. Uh, this is the same summer we were, the United States was bombing Libya. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I met such an incredibly warm welcome um, for the people, and I'd never been anyplace interesting like that. And when I came back, I just started studying Arabic and got interested in the region. My my bachelor's degree and my Middle East and my master's degree were in uh, Near East language and literature, um, so really interdisciplinary. And then I started working on a uh, Uh, for an NGO called the International Peace Academy. Uh, It's now the International Peace Institute. And I was assigned to a research project on civil society in the Middle East that was run by uh, Dick Norton, Augustus Richard Norton from West Point, and then uh, Farhad Kazemi, who I knew actually from NYU in the Department of Politics. Long story, they had a falling out with the director of the center and they moved their project to NYU. And so I moved to the Department of Politics at NYU I was hired as a research professor to run the project for the duration, it was another three years, and I was given tuition remission. And so I just started taking courses in politics, and then I matriculated into the PhD program. So the interest in in the Middle East was a result of this random backpacking trip, and then the focus on politics really shifted uh, when I was in the politics department and started to think more specifically about those kinds of issues. Fantastic. And are you still looking to make it on Broadway? Uh, no, I'm not. You know, they keep calling and asking me, but uh, I, they, they wanted me to star in the uh, Atomic Blonde, but I gave it to Charlize Theron because she you know, needed, a, needed a role, so I let her have that one. Well, Broadway and Hollywood's losses, the Academy's gain, so I'm, I'm delighted that it didn't work out that way. Uh, let's go back to, to 1986 and, uh, and Syria and Turkey. And... Uh, Someone from Detroit who'd not previously had a passport going to Syria, going to Turkey. What was your experience like there? What are your memories of that time? And and 
what must it have been like for you going from the US, not having been abroad, to um, to to such places that would be dramatically different from from the US at that time? It was remarkable. I mean, it's interesting. I, I never felt like I really belonged in where I'm where I grew up. Um, it was fairly conservative, uh, and I was always kind of you know I was a theater kid, and so we were always a little bit weird and. When I came to New York, one of the things I loved about it was it was just so different. I remember being on the subway, and this is the 80s, and we had, you know, the sort of Mohawk punk rockers Mm -hmm. on a subway next to, you know, Orthodox Hasidic man next to a business person. And everybody's just hanging there. Now, in retrospect, it was romanticizing a little bit because, of course, there were all kinds of conflicts uh, that were taking place. But I just loved the diversity. And so I think there was something about me that was just open to completely different experiences that when I went there, I wasn't the least bit uncomfortable. It was sort of, you know, different food, different places, different smells. And it was just all exciting to me uh, because I was just open to whatever. I was with uh, my roommate at the time who was a little bit older than me, so more experience in backpacking. But she, uh, like myself, has red hair. And so we're both not blending in, let's just say. (laughs) And we were just met with this, you know, wonderful hospitality. We took a a bus trip from um, uh, into Aleppo from, I forget the border town in um, Turkey. And we stop at the border and, you know, it's like 10 miles. It's not very far to get to Aleppo. We're looking at the map. And so we're like, let's just eat when we get to Aleppo because they're going to have good food there. Well, little did we know that the bus trip was going to take like eight hours because they stop you and they take everything off the bus and they search everyone's luggage and you're <laughs> basically at the border for hours. And we didn't have any food or water because we thought we were going to be there in no time. And everybody basically adopted us. They were giving us nuts and people that had a few words in English would talk to us. Uh, One gentleman was so nice. He lived in Aleppo. When we got to Aleppo, he hosted us for dinner with his family. You know, all kinds of hospitality of the region that, you know, they're famous for. But it was just this remarkable experience. And one of the things that stuck with me was from this gentleman, um, said we love americans we just don't like your government Hmm. and it really struck me because as an american i grew up you know as a white american i should say i grew up with the luxury of not really having to pay any attention to your government if you wanted to ignore it you could ignore it you know except for getting speeding tickets you could basically ignore it and go about your life um again that's not true for all americans particularly americans of color but that was my experience and so I never thought in my head of thinking of the people of a country different from the government of a country. And that was just, you know, my lack of education and knowledge and lack of experience. And it just really struck with me that people were so welcoming, but they're like, we don't like your government and what your government's doing, but we love Americans. And we just, we encountered that throughout the whole trip, you know, because we were, you know, didn't stand out. Everybody wanted to talk to us. Everyone wanted to take us to dinner. No one would let us pay for anything. And we just had just such a wonderful, wonderful time. Amazing. That point about the government's really, really interesting. Uh, and I guess it would be the same for me when I was growing up in the UK as a, as a, as a, as a white middle class person. I could avoid the government should I choose to. But then I, exactly. I, I wonder when you were in Turkey and Syria at this time, you had some, some more oppressive forms of, of government than you would have seen in the UK or the US. 
Was that visible to you at this time, given your your ability to ignore what was going on with the government back home? Were you exposed to a very real, dare I say, tangible authoritarian presence? Or was that something that, that became apparent later? So the only place that was notably visible to me was seeing people with guns in the street. Uh, not just a handgun on a police officer's hip like we see here, but I had never seen so many guns everywhere. And I don't know if they were military or police. I didn't know at the time. I probably wouldn't necessarily know now. But I just I remember noticing the presence of guns everywhere, and that was striking to me. But the the harsh repression of the people, uh, especially in you know houses of Las Syria, it just wasn't visible to me, and I wasn't really looking for it, frankly. We were just looking at sites. It was my first trip, and I had never seen a building that was more than a couple hundred years old. And here we are in Turkey, you know, with the the the, the dual mosque, the blue mosque, and the Ice Sophia mosque. One a thousand years older than the other one, which is already a thousand years old. And then we're in Damascus and the Umayyad mosque, and so we we're really focusing on those kinds of cultural sites. But I do remember being surprised by all the guns everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I can imagine that was, uh, yeah, that was quite an experience to see. So going back then and studying the region, studying its culture, its literature must have been really fascinating and, and really rich, um, especially given your, your background in the arts. Where does this interest in, in Islamism come from then? And, and Jordan as well, because there's, there's these two themes that keep cropping up in, in your work, I think, on Islamism and Jordan. So where, where do they come from? Stems from this project I mentioned I was working on at the International Peace Academy sure. on okay. civil society. And they were surveying, we had authors from all these different countries surveying the state of civil society and NGOs. And in, in retrospect, the concept isn't actually that useful for analyzing the region because it's a very liberal concept about mm-hmm. a distinction between you know family and government, this sort of intermediary space. Um, but what was interesting, I found one of the things that was interesting was that Islamist groups and charitable societies were super active, but kind of didn't know how to classify them. You know, are they part of civil society? How do you think of them, et cetera? And so that was one of the general interests. Now it's into the 90s and I'm, uh, you know, in the PhD program. And one of the things that had happened was that uh, Jordan and Yemen were both cases where uh, they opened up elections after not having elections in Yemen ever, in the north ever, but in the south um, they had. But then in Jordan, having elections suspended um, after the 60-day war in 1967. So both of them have had Islamist parties that were trying to fashion themselves into political parties. And so that was the sort of the broad region, uh, broad reason that those cases worked. The secondary personal reason, which, you know, you never really talk about, but is actually part of it, was I studied Arabic, uh, I, I know, at NYU for three years, and then Middlebury, and then I went to the CASA program in Egypt mm-hmm. uh, and learned uh, Egyptian dialects as well as Wafa. And a lot of people that were there fell in love with Cairo as, is easy to do and basically stayed to work on Egypt. And I remember talking to someone at the time that was bemoaning some of the research access because there were so many PhD students there and so many people working on Egypt and working on Cairo that it was sometimes hard to get appointments 
um, and contact people, particularly government officials or party officials, because everybody wanted to talk to them and they're getting a little weary of it. And so uh, analytically, it made sense to look at Jordan and Yemen, but they also were cases that were just less researched. Uh, And so I ended up being great because I had tremendous access in both places. And I also talked to someone who came back from Yemen who was just in love with the place. And I thought, I have to see this place. And I'm sure glad I did at the time because, of course, it's very difficult to uh, travel there safely and do research there now. So I was quite fortunate to be able to do it in the 90s and early 2000s. So it was part part of a personal decision. I wanted to do a different case from what everyone was working Mm -hmm. on, but also... It just grew out of that a project on civil society and, you know, how do we think about these groups that don't kind of fit here or there, yet they're incredibly active in these societies. So working with Augustus Richard Norton on civil society must have been quite something given the, the huge amount of work he did on the topic. But but as you say, it's there's an interesting tension there between this very Western concept and its application in a region where similar types of things are going on to what we might identify as civil society, but play out in different ways with different types of actors to what we might associate with civil society elsewhere. What are your sort of reflections on that point of tension? This is something that I think comes out in in a number of your works across different case studies, different time periods. I'm just wondering what your your broader reflections are on those points of tension? Well, in retrospect, I mean, the, the thing that comes into view in retrospect that I wasn't acutely aware of at the time was that in the NGO world, the UN world, funding agencies, foundations, there are trends in topics that come and go. Um, women, you know, women's NGOs or, you know, Islamist groups or good governance And civil society, the project, maybe propelled some of this as well as was reflective of it. It was very eager to find democratic practices in places that seemed to be not democratizing, but liberalizing in the sense of allowing a little more political activity than they had previously. So, for example, allowing for elections and political parties to campaign and publish platforms, even if those elections aren't really going to do any governing or legislating. Right. So there were these. Uh, slim openings. So in retrospect, I see part of the project, and particularly uh, Dick Dick Norton personally, as really eager to find democratic practices and and tout it and promote it and encourage it and talk about it in this positive light against this sort of long lingering orientalism of the sort of backward places and violence in the region and extremism, etc. You know, eager to show that there are people there organizing in ways that are very familiar to us, that want to have a say in their societies, they want to have a say in shaping their governance. Um, and I think all of that's true, and I think the, the, the books, the two-volume set that we produced, as well as there was a small volume by that was published by Lynn Reiner, but the two-volume Brill set mm-hmm. really does show the sort of richness of civil society-like organizations, um, as well as efforts by governments to inhibit and restrict them. So that was a positive thing. But in retrospect, I now see it as part of this trend of wanting to find, you know, democratic practices and to encourage them. Uh, and there was the 90s were kind of this decade of a lot of discussion of civil society yeah, sure. that sort of slid by the wayside 
uh, and was replaced in some sense by the sort of resilient authoritarian literatures. Now, they both had something to say, um, but I think there's some, time, some way in which they kind of suck up all the air in the room and became the topic to talk about in ways that I think missed a lot of uh, what else was going on. And so my, you know, my dissertation, which was the first book, emerged out of exploring some of that, but it still was looking at becoming political parties. So it still had, and I've written critically about this as well, but it still had that edge of, you know, look, Islamists aren't all extremists here. They're really just trying to figure out how to be political parties. They're really trying to figure out how do we operate in a playing field that that includes communists? You know, are we okay with that? And they were trying to figure that out. And I still think that's fascinating, but it sort of is on the tail end of that eager to find democratic practice trend that I think was prominent in the 90s. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear you say. Uh, just as you were, you were reflecting on that, I wonder if maybe a way around that problem, which is a little bit peripheral to, to what we were planning to talk about, I guess, is maybe to replace the word democratic with the, the term political. So you're noticing the, the existence and development of political practices but aren't necessarily the democratic, Western liberal democratic practices that Washington and others would have been trying to identify. Yeah, I think that's a very helpful formulation, because if you think of it in those terms, that people are trying to carve out and forge political spaces and places where they can engage politically, political practices that aren't necessarily elections or democracy promoting, but trying to, you know, assert agency and create spaces to operate. I think that gives you like a better analytic framework, but that also brings into view, you know, those efforts that people are trying to do. And then you can see the diversity of what they're doing and what they're accomplishing or trying to accomplish. So, yeah, I think that that, that would be a much more uh, fruitful way to think about it. Well, maybe that's a discussion for another day um, when we don't have this really fascinating and deceptively <laughs> heavy tome. I've just picked up your, your wonderful new book and remember that just how heavy it is. It's a, a very weighty, uh, a weighty book, <laughs> both physically and intellectually. So let's let's go to your new book, Gillian, please. This um, this wonderful book published by Stanford titled Protesting Jordan. Geographies of power and dissent, and this this engages with politics and the political in a in a different way to to what we've just been talking about by reflecting on protest and space and and power. But I think it's a fabulous book and a really really interesting set of reflections on on really important things. So for people who've not read it yet and. In case you, you haven't got it from the, the excitement in my voice, you really should. It's a wonderful book. Can you tell our listeners, what is it about, please? What is it about? <clears throat> it's, a, it's an ambitious book, yeah. So maybe I'll tell you how I started working on it, and then I can talk about some of the big contributions and the, sure. what it's about. So as I was doing the work on the Islamist parties, I was going to protest because they were going to protest. And I discovered there were so many protests happening, uh, like hundreds a year happening, and there were no massacres. And the only massacres at protests were things that the British did in the 20s. Um, but the government is like relatively uh, tolerant of protests. And at the time, I was um, uh, my first job in in 
after my PhD was at the University of Maryland. And so I was living in D.C. part time. And it had this really strange encounter in a taxi cab in Cairo or in Amman on the way to a protest that we get ensnarled in traffic and the cab drivers complaining these protests, like what a, what a nuisance they are because they create all this traffic problems. And I had this flashback to being in a cab in D.C. that said essentially the same thing. And so this just struck me as really interesting in the sense of here is a non-democratic country, right? It often gets, you know, portrayed as moderate, but, you know, it's moderate compared to some of the more monstrous regimes. But it's not a democratic country. It's a very repressive country in many ways. And yet it's tolerance of protest uh, in a certain kind of way. And so that was just kind of an interesting puzzle. Like, how do we think about a rich protest culture in a non-democratic setting? Mm. You know, what's going on there? And so that was kind of, I just wanted to pursue that in thinking about protest uh, and politics. And there was also a shift away. And this, I, I mentioned this in, I believe it's in the, in the acknowledgments that might be in early in the first chapter. But I was talking to um, an interlocutor who asked me to bring some of the articles that we had, political scientists had written on Jordan, people he knew. And so the next trip over, I brought a stack of things. Of course, it's before the internet. So I brought some printout and I gave to him. And when I saw him after that, I asked him, so what did you think? And he said, yeah, Jillian, I just don't recognize Jordan. And this was a really devastating comment. And his, his point was, you're right. I mean, you're, you guys are all factually right. You know, you're looking at political parties and elections and districting and all that matters. And it's all politics. But mm. this isn't what we think of as important. And we meaning sort of activists. It's like that's a sideshow. It's a distraction. You know, elections are more about patronage and, and controlling opposition. And that's not where politics is. And it was a devastating comment, but I really took it to heart. And I wanted to, one, write a book about protests that Jordanians would recognize, even if they disagreed with my analysis, but they would they would say, yes, that yes, yes. You know, and they'd recognize it. Uh, and I also just got increasingly, as I was, it started, I was doing a, a hand coding events data, and there were just so many protests that it was overwhelming. I had to stop because there were so many. And then that just became part of the impetus. Like, how do we think about protests? And so there's a number of, you know, big kind of interventions. Um, there's three main ones, but then there's something else I want to thread through. The three main ones is looking at state making as an ongoing process, and it's a dialectic one with protests. So we often hear of Jordan as this top down artificial state-making endeavor by the British and the Hashimites. And that's true as far as it goes. Um, but first, all states are invented. Jordan's not the only invented state. So they're all constructs. Um, but as you read in like some of the uh, uh, Marxist literature on the state, anthropology on the state, they focus on the ways in which there's these con- constant contestations, constant challenges. The state has to constantly maneuver around acts of resistance. And so when you take those insights and go back to the early state-making period in Jordan, what you see is the state that emerges is in, in, in terms of who's, who's allied, where the capital is located. A lot of what emerges as Jordan is a direct result of acts of resistance and protest. And so I really sort of, that's one of the big interventions. The second one has to do with the way protests shape the built environment and the built environment shapes protests. And I have a lot I can say on that, um, so maybe we'll come back to that. And the third is sort of bringing in the international relations aspects front and center into parts of the story. So um, 
the ways in which regional security, financial, economic interactions, and global interconnections shape protests in Jordan. And protests actually shape some of those interconnections as well in very concrete, tangible ways. So it's not simply a domestic issue of protesting against the regime, but you can bring forth these kinds of connections, which I think are incredibly interesting and um, generative. So those are the three big theoretical insights. But I do want to add one other theme that threads through, which is a lot of the literature on protests, and particularly the, the uprising period, focuses on, and this is true you know, in the contentious politics literature and the protest literature, a lot of it focuses on the success-failure question. Did the protests accomplish what they set out to do? And in most cases, globally, not just Jordan, the answer is no. They don't actually accomplish what they set out to accomplish. But then they just, the, the analysis often stops there. It's failed, right? You didn't, and, and you know, I show in Jordan protests actually accomplish a lot and have, have had some major political impacts, including uh, preventing Jordan from joining the Baghdad Pact, which uh, the young King Hussein wanted to do in the 50s. So they do actually have some political effects, but most of them don't accomplish what they set out to do. Mm -hmm. And I try to show that that's a really narrow way of understanding political effects. If we stand back and say, like, what are concrete, tangible, identifiable political effects of protest, a whole set of issues come into view even for protests that seem to have failed to accomplish what they set out to do. And so that's the sort of running theme throughout the book as well. That's that's a really interesting theme to, to pull out. And that overview of the three main contributions is incredibly valuable. There's, there's a big question that I want to get into with regard to, to space and place. But before we get into that, Gillian, if you were to categorize this book, in a library, where do you put it? That's a great question. Well, <laughs> this is sort of, I mean, it's because it's an interdisciplinary book and it draws heavily on, you know, uh, geography, yeah. urban planning, um, that sort of spatial turn, uh, as well as ethnography. It's a very um, on-the-ground you know, you really get the feel of places, and that's really intentional as well. I guess I would want to stick in political scientists because I want political scientists to read it <laughs> and think differently about what they're doing. But that's a great question, and it's a question you could actually answer because you can find what kind of number it would get in the in the stacks and where it might be placed. But probably, probably with contentious politics and protests, because that's the sort of central theme, um, and it speaks directly to those literatures. But as I said, it has a lot to say about about state making, a lot to say about power, a lot to say about, you know, the built environment. So maybe we could stick a, copies in a bunch of different areas. <laughs> That's the way to do it. I like that. Multiple copies per library. That's the way to go. It's just when you were saying about the, the IR component, I was thinking this is, it's not the book that I read. I, I didn't read an IR book there. And I'm not suggesting you said that this is an IR book, but even when you were identifying the sort of trying to draw on IR themes, even when you when you do that, it's putting them into dialogue with with other types of debates and disciplinary approaches that I think are far more dominant, far more useful, and dare I say, and I'm sticking my head out here, 
far more interesting <laughs> than some of the IR approaches. And I think yeah, I don't really yeah. Oh, sorry, I was just going to say I think really, the interesting stuff is the 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 spaces, the spatial turn in your book is fascinating. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's to say it's I'm not really engaging IR literature or theories per se, but yeah. the sort of IR purview of regional and global connections mm-hmm. and how it shapes and is shaped by domestic politics. Yeah, but I'm sure. really yeah, it's the spatial turn is really. I think the central theoretical, um, more the more central theoretical original aspect for um, thinking about protests and, uh, but but really in the last chapter and also in the uprisings chapter, you know, I show for example, Jordan runs a counterterrorism training center that was built by the U.S. Department of Defense and run by U.S. contractors, even though the the Jordanian Army and security services run the actual training component of it, and anyone can go there. Like you have special forces from the United States, you from from all manner of countries, from China, from across the region. You have what we would used to call mercenary groups, but now it's sort of private security contractors go there for training, and they're training together. And so we often see, like if you look at the uprising period, we'll say, "Oh, Syria learned from watching what happened in Libya and Egypt and Tunisia, right?" And so you have this component of they're learning by observing each other. But I'm, what I'm showing is they're actually learning the same curriculum. They're literally studying courses in places like Jordan. Not only Jordan, of course, they're all over the place. There's tremendous money made by these um, training centers. But you can take courses in crowd control, in clearing a plaza, in basically the things that riot police do to protesters. Yeah. They're studying the same tactics and curriculum. And that, you, so you'll, what, what happened in Bahrain happened in during the uprising period the sort of violent clearing of the square included jordanian gendarmerie forces who were sent to bahrain to help with that process even as jordan reacts differently to its own domestic um political dissent and so i'm trying to sort of bring those linkages forward to bring them into view um and help us understand a richer picture so we don't have again to draw on the uprising period what happened in Egypt is separate from what happened in Tunisia. And we take all these cases and we file them in different columns and these had uprisings and these ones didn't because it was all actually, actually much more interconnected uh, through security sectors than many of the analyses tend to sort of bring into view. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's really, really interesting. But I definitely wouldn't describe it as an IR book. It's <laughs> sure. more bringing in, yeah, yeah, yeah. bringing in that component. Yeah. Very yeah. much so. Gotcha. So, why is a, a spatial turn so valuable for, for understanding Jordan, do you think? And maybe for people who aren't all that familiar with the idea of a spatial turn, what, what are you understanding by, or what are you meaning by a, a spatial turn? Well, for me, it's thinking systematically about space and place and how that affects protests and how protests affect place and space. So let me give a concrete example. Um, the Capitol. So on one sense, the Capitol, Amman, uh, was built in um, a small trading town where there was not a whole, there was no protest. I can't find a single protest that took place before the Capitol was moved there. Um, King Abdullah initially wanted to, or Bimir Abdullah initially wanted to settle in Salt, 
and couldn't settle insult because when he showed up there with his entourage, they protested for days and days because they didn't want him there. So the Capitol emerged in re- spatially in response to the fact that the existing towns had all local authorities and didn't want him. And so they chose a different place. So now let's zoom in on the Capitol. Protests started there really quickly because, of course, as the seat of power, it's the go-to place to protest if you're angry with the government, if you want jobs, if you're complaining about taxes, etc. And so it developed these sort of repertoires, spatial repertoires for protest. And so in the original town, the main downtown area was where all the commerce was and where all the government buildings were. So a few hundred people could really bring everything to a standstill. And that happened for decades. And you would start at the Grand Husseini Mosque, which wasn't anything to do with Islam. It just happened to be the place where people could gather. And then you'd protest and you'd march to the municipal building and you'd protest there for a while. So flash forward decades, as the city expands wildly, the population explodes, not only because of the waves of Palestinian refugees, but because people going to the capital for jobs, broader patterns of urbanization globally, etc., The downtown area is no longer the commercial or government center. They've all moved out elsewhere. So now downtown, and this is up until today, thousands of people downtown protesting and marching to the municipal center, which is now in a different location, but nonetheless, um, are not disruptive of anything unless you happen to be downtown. And this defies what ha- what we see in a lot of the protest events data literature in political science and sociology is they'll see these, you know, numerical representations. And when you see spikes in numbers of people, you understand those to be the most contentious events. Suddenly thousands of people are on the street. But when you look at spatially at the Capitol, I discovered those protests are the least contentious because they're very contained and they're not disruptive of anything anymore. And so I could ask, you know, what's happening in this space as opposed to a different kind of space? Why are other spaces more contentious, Um, whether they're other spaces in the capital or spaces outside of the capital? And so just thinking about space in those kinds of and place in those kinds of of, uh, insights led me to approach protests through this spatial lens. There have been a a number of uh, spatial turns in contentious politics. A lot of it has to do with uh, space and revolutions. Um, so it's not a lot that's looking at it in terms of specific protest locations mm-hmm. and uh, repertoires of like this neighborhood versus that intersection. Um, but I think there's, you know, been more attention to it. Certainly in revolutions, there's a lot of attention to space and revolutions and these kinds of issues. But that's sort of what I mean by space is it really uh, on the ground, fine grained, what happens in a particular location, what's the dynamics in a particular location, uh, and when you familiar with all those routines, it also helps you see where there's innovation, you know, where there's particular ruptures, where someone's doing something differently. Um, but you can't really get that sense of how thousands of people are routine unless you're aware that that's, you know, the, what's been going on for decades and decades. Yeah. I mean, it's a very d- different type of, of research, <laughs> very different uh, approach theoretically, methodologically, epistemologically to to some of the, the more mainstream poli-sci, IR type approaches. But I think it's, yeah, it's so valuable. And the the ways in which you you focus on the spatial and the, the distribution of power across space, I thought was was incredibly valuable in, in helping to understand, and I guess this links to, to the first point that you made, the, 
the ongoing process of, of state-making and the transformation of space and place as part of a broader transformation of a state project? Yes, yeah, I mean, that's definitely one of the themes that I'm, I'm trying to bring out. And but, yeah, as, as you mentioned, the ongoingness of it. So we don't simply have these periods of stable normal time politics ruptured by a, you know, a protest here or there. That doesn't mean it isn't intended to diminish moments of exceptional protest, mm-hmm. when, which you do have in Jordan that will bring the country to a standstill, uh, either around Israeli campaigns in the Palestinian land and, and the death that brings, or around austerity measures, you'll find people will just pour onto the street. These aren't activist organized protests. These are massive popular movements of people onto the street. So those do happen and they're important. But there are so many protests that are really ongoing and routine. And the government is really constantly scrambling to try to co-opt these leaders, threaten these people to intimidate them, um, alter the built environment in ways to make it harder to protest. It's just a constant scramble for the government to try to sort of uh, maintain this under control. And I guess that's why you've got the, the subtitle Geographies of Power and Dissent. Yes, that's exactly what that's aiming to capture. So I hope that brings that into view. Well, I think so. I mean, th- there's so much we can pick up on in in this book, Julian. It's so dense. It's so rich. Um but we would be here all day and probably the next couple of days. So maybe to, to wrap it up, and it's such a shame because I would have loved to talk about the final chapter and the, the global components of this. But one of the things that struck me most and intrigued me most about the book was the discussion of Aqaba and the, the special economic zones, which is something, it's a concept that, that really intrigues me conceptually excuse me, and politically. And I, I was really, really interested to read your, your reflections on that. So can you just tell us a little bit about what that's all about, please, and how this, this special economic zone plays into the, the spatial transformation of Aqaba, please? Yeah, so the special economic zones, there's variety, they take a variety of forms, but basically there are places, and they're, they're dotted throughout Jordan. Uh, there's a significant one in Amman, but this is something that happened with the with the political uh, transformation, the neoliberalization with the first IMF agreement. And these happen globally. And so there's certain zones that have uh, different sets of laws. They're legal exceptionalism. And so they're not necessarily um, like for, uh, trade in and out of them doesn't pay. It's duty free, you know, tax free, et cetera. And so Aqaba is designated as one of these special economic zones and has been reconstructed all around what is needed for for that, for the special economic zone to facilitate trade. At the same time, Aqaba is a gorgeous waterfront mm-hmm. area. It's Jordan's only port. And right next door is Eilat in Israel. And that has huge resorts. And so in a lot of ways, the government was seeing this as a missed opportunity. How come we don't have a nice built-up area? So in building up the port to create it as a more of a world-class port, um, and to build up the sort of tourist infrastructure, as often is the case, the people that live there have to be moved. They have to go because the waterfront area has to be more productive. So we see this in the United States as well. We see this in you know, the global north. And one of the things I want the book to do is to de-exceptionalize the Middle East by showing the commonality of a lot of these practices. 
differences yeah. are, aren't simply about the global south. But anyways, back to Aqaba. So whole neighborhoods were cleared. Workers were moved um, into new housing in, you know, off, you know, a couple kilometers into the desert and promised that there would be regular bus service. And then the bus service, you know, doesn't really materialize as well. And so they're stranded in these out of the way places. And there were tons of protests around these kinds of issues. The dock workers were angry that the port was privatized. Um, it's actually run by um, a Gulf um, uh, entity. Uh, and so they were protesting that. So there's a lot of anger around the ways in which Aqab is being reconstructed in ways that aren't beneficial for Jordanians, the locals that live there. That doesn't mean Jordanians, some Jordanians aren't profiting from it, but the whole uh, town has been reconstructed and neighborhoods moved, people removed, etc. And so there is a number of uh, significant strikes and protests that I talk about there including one that I, I loop back to in the end of the book and talk about um, in detail, which was, and this is a spatial issue as well, they're frustrated that they're not getting any response from the government. These are unemployed workers, decide they're going to walk to the Capitol and protest in the Capitol, and they do. They walk on barefoot. They pick up a number of people along the way. Other protests from the north, marches from the north join them, and you end up with you know, some 200 and 350 unemployed workers down in the capital at the royal court demanding jobs. Uh, and so because they're left out of what has been reconstructed in Aqaba and because they're from these, you know, loyal, so-called supposed loyalist areas, these East Bank areas, you can't simply, you know, crush these protesters in the same kinds of ways. And so after several weeks, they end up getting jobs for them. They're first, they're offered some small jobs and they don't want, the workers don't want these small jobs. They want, jobs in like phosphates and, you know, potash industries, et cetera. Hmm, yeah. These industries, though, had been privatized. So they're asking the government, the, the, the regime, not even the government, they're asking the, the, the king to get them jobs in the private sector in these industries. And after some weeks, they do. They get them those jobs, they put them on a bus, and they send them back home, back to Aqaba and to the other places where they picked up workers. And of course, that only starts, then we have this whole new spatial routine of unemployed people walking to the capital to get jobs. And that continued up until the pandemic time when it really sort of came to a standstill. It's fascinating and really, really shows the interplay of space, place, economics, capital, flows of capital, political power, dissent, protest, the interplay of all these different things. And I think the book really is is fabulous, and I'm really delighted that it's getting the 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 critically acclaimed reception that it deserves. But Jillian, thank you so much both for writing the book and for provoking such uh, such thoughts in me and and many others. But also thank you for your time today. It's been a real real pleasure. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Oh, thank you so much. I enjoyed it too, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. And. Uh, I hope people take up the invitation to take some of these insights and think about other cases and then I can learn back from them and we can develop new ways of thinking about politics protests uh, that are outside of the, the conventional in political science. I certainly hope so too, and I'm sure that they will. A huge thanks to Jillian for her time just now. You can find her on Twitter at Dr. J. Schwedler. That's at Dr. J. Schwedler. And, as always, a huge thank you to you for listening. Please do take care of yourselves, and until next time.